and uh, it's called Put Away the Toys. For those of you that have not been here, this is a series about growing up in our faith. It's about being a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, and starting to take his word and putting it into practice in our lives. Now, I know that you, you, we think we've done that all our lives, uh, but we've made a lot of excuses for why we don't. We've made a lot of excuses for why it's okay to live the way we're living. And, you know, we don't smoke or drink or chew or hang out with girls who do, but we slander and we gossip and we hold unforgiveness in our heart, and that's okay. Or at least that's what we've been telling ourselves. And it is not okay because we have been given grace. We have been given the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to transform the way that we live, the way that we talk, the things that we love. Every part of our lives is about to change because of this power in us. If you believe the word, you have to believe that. Because Jesus said, I'm giving you the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything we need now for life and godliness is in us. Okay? And so this series about putting away childish things and choosing to put them away. Choosing to put away the toys. Okay? Some of you today are tired. You don't feel well. You know, we, we just get, you know, run down. But we can choose right now to just exercise our faith and to set our hearts in mind. And in a few minutes, you're going to doze off and start thinking about something else. And then you got to come back and you got to just set your mind. Again, not because what I'm saying is important, but because I'm about to share with you the word of God. And so I want you to hear what he says. And this series has come from a book by Eugene Peterson called Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's about perseverance. And today is probably like the hallmark verse or passage is because it's on perseverance, okay? We've been looking at the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are Psalm 120 through 134. They are songs that the Jews would sing as they traveled to Jerusalem to worship God because the, the presence of God in the Old Testament lived in Jerusalem. That was his temple, okay? That's where he was. So to, in order to go and worship him, they had to go there. We don't go to the temple. We don't go to a physical location. When we sing the song, your glory fills this temple, we are not talking about this building or this room. There is nothing sacred about this room. It's a room. And you can eat in here. You can drink in here. We just ask that you don't make a mess in here. Don't spill it on the carpet because just like your home, whenever your kids go in the living room, I hope you do this, you say, be careful with that food. Be careful with that orange soda. Don't just spill it on the carpet. Not because this is so holy, because this room is just a room. When we say your glory fills this temple, we're talking about this because we are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. So everywhere, everywhere we go, it's like the temple goes. The presence of God is at work with you. The presence of God is at the store with you. The presence of God is where you are. And so as we sing these psalms of ascent, we're not ascending to a physical place, but we are ascending to a spiritual place. The scripture does tell us that even though in Christ we are positioned before God in right standing, we still have to work out our salvation. Meaning as we start to see Jesus clearer, we start applying that to our lives in every way. It's like a building block. We are building. The foundation is Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That's what Paul says. But we're being built into a house. And together, corporately, we're being built together into a house. 
Because how, do you, how many of you know two are better than one? A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So when you start joining together with a body of believers, man, you are becoming stronger and stronger. And what God is about to do in this city is going to be huge. Because it's not just about our church. It's about all churches starting to come together in unity and in purpose to see his kingdom come. Surprise, his kingdom's already here. If you're taking notes, write down these three passages of scripture. Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. We're gonna go there in your Bible in just a second. Write down Luke chapter 17. So Isaiah 43, Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. And then James chapter one, verses two through four. James chapter one, verses two through four. If you want to turn in your Bible to them as we read them, go ahead, they're not on the screen. Isaiah 43, Luke 17, 20 and 21, James 1, 2 through 4. You can look them up later, you can look them up now with us, but as we talk about a spiritual growth, spiritual ascent, we sometimes have a mistaken idea of what this looks like. How many of you know what Brownsville is? If I say the words Brownsville, you know what I'm talking about. Lift up your hand if you know. Okay, Brownsville is the name of a church. It's an Assembly of God church in Pensacola, Florida. In June, Father's Day of 1995, if my memory serves correctly, the church had been praying for God to move and show up in power. And they felt his presence in an unusual way during the service. And it began a series of services, revival services, where they met every single week. Tuesday night was a prayer meeting. I was at a prayer meeting there on a Tuesday night, and it was not like your normal prayer meeting where you just come in and sit down and quietly bow your head. They were directed how to pray. People walked, they prayed out loud, they believed God, they applied the truth of his scripture to situations, and they prayed for the coming week. Because on Wednesday night, Thursday night, and Friday night, they had special services. People would wait in line in the Florida sun for literally 12 hours. They had porta potties set up along the parking lot for the people waiting in line to get into these services. And people were being saved. People that were drug addicts were being delivered. People were being set free from all kinds of addictions, from all kinds of healing. And it was amazing. It was just, some people were amazed by it. Some people were like, that's not God. This is, and they were critiquing it all and how it was happening. But here's the problem. We now have this understanding that revival or growth is going to come down from heaven, that we're going to feel something that, you know, there's going to be this special move and it's going to be just like that. And then we're going to have services every day out of the week. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 43, because I I don't think that's what's going to happen. I mean, God can do whatever he wants. I mean, if you want to have, if you want, whatever you want to do, I'm okay with. So I'm just letting you know. Isaiah 43, but this is what God says. All the way back in Isaiah, written hundreds of years ago. But now, O Jacob, Jacob, Israel, the people of God, okay? So anytime it says Jacob, Israel in the Old Testament, that's New Testament believers, people of God, children of God. So now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you says, do not be afraid. Whenever you feel afraid, you just need to say, what God says, do not be afraid. But God, I feel afraid. You said, do not be afraid. Help me to overcome fear. 
Because I have no reason to fear because you have ransomed me. We started this with the Psalm 18 that said, your enemies cannot come near you. God determines how close your enemies can get to you. Nothing is going to happen to you ever that God cannot see before it happens. Okay? So you don't have to fear that. Now, sometimes what happens in your life is not the design of God, meaning he didn't author it. He didn't say, I'm planning this sickness for you to learn. But he's saying, this sickness is coming, I'm allowing it, and I've given you the power and authority over it. Nothing is ever going to come near you that I don't have fully aware of and empower you to, do, to be able to walk through. Okay, that's what he says. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters... I will be with you. It doesn't matter if you feel like he's with you or not. He's with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. Now, it doesn't say that they won't hurt you. But it says they will not consume you. I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Look at verse 10. You are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, what are we? His witnesses. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. You are my servant. You've been chosen. Here it is. This is God's will for your life right here. If you've been wondering, underline it, circle it, highlight it. To know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. That's his will for you. There is no other God. There never has been and never will be. I am the Lord. And there's no other Savior. First, I predicted your rescue. Then I saved you and I proclaimed it to the world. He did this in the Old Testament for his people and he did it in the New Testament, both. He has proclaimed it, then he did it, both times. No foreign God has ever done this. You are my witnesses that I am the only God, says the Lord. From eternity to eternity. That means God has no concept of time. He dwells outside of time. So when we have deadlines, God doesn't know what that means. I mean, he does because he's God, but he, he's not pressured by time. So we feel like, you know, God, you really got to come through by such and such a day. And God's like, no, I'm looking at this thing for eternity. From eternity past to eternity present. No beginning, no end. Okay, time will someday cease to exist. God will not. And so he's already in that place. I know it's hard for us to understand. No one, no one can snatch anyone out of my hand. No one can undo what I have done. Now, from the NIV, verse 16. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and there they lay, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Okay, that's the picture of how Israel came out of Egypt. Just like we come out of sin, and we pass through the waters of baptism, and they pass through, and he drowns all their enemies, that's the symbolism of the New Testament. So look what he says now. Forget the former things. Forget the way I delivered you out of Egypt. Forget how that happened. Because when God delivered them out of Egypt, it was all outside of them. Okay? Everything was outside of them. God acted and did this to the waters. God acted and he said, stand still and see the deliverance of your God. It was all about standing still and seeing the deliverance of your your God. They didn't do anything. 
He delivered them, okay? But he says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. God says, I'm doing a new thing. And when he says, now it springs up. Remember where he dwells. He dwells outside of time. So when God says it springs up now, it's because he's already set it into motion. And what he has set into motion, the new thing that he has set into motion is Jesus. He prophesied that a child would come. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and she will bear a son and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He saves my people from their sins. He's going to be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It's interesting how the father and son can be the same, but how can the son be the everlasting father? But that's for another day. He prophesied this was going to happen, and it springs up now. Here's the key. Do you perceive it? That's what he says right here. Do you perceive it? Do you understand it? Do you see it? Do you understand the shift that is taking place, the reality of the kingdom of heaven? In Luke chapter 17, turn over there. Luke chapter 17, when Jesus came to the earth, he he tried to correct their mindset completely and shift them from what they could see with their eyes to what they should believe in their hearts. The kingdom that was about to come on the earth was not a literal physical kingdom they could see with their eyes as much as it was a kingdom within. This is what he says, Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he replied to them by saying, the kingdom of God does not come with signs to be observed or with visible display. Revival, growth, is not about what happens on the outside. It's not about the manifestation. It's not about the visible signs. It's not about whether we sensed God's presence or not. It's not about whether someone fell down or someone prayed or someone cried or someone danced. It's not about visible signs or display. Nor will people say, look, here it is, or see, it is there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. It's within you. It's within you, in your hearts and among you, surrounding you. Everything that God said, the new thing that he's doing is he's putting his Holy Spirit within us. No longer will you have to have the laws written on tablets of stone. Stop getting all upset that the Ten Commandments are not on the wall of any building. (laughs) The laws of God are now written in our hearts. And when they're on the wall for people to see, there's no power to be able to keep them anyway. The power comes from the Holy Spirit within us. In the New Testament, we've been given grace to do what God commands of us. We can't do it in our own strength. We do it with his strength. The Spirit of God living within us. See, nothing else is coming down from heaven. We're waiting for God to come down, and God says it's not coming down, it's springing up from within. I've given you my Spirit. I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. Now apply it. Do it. Walk it. Let it out. Release it into the lives of others and in your own life. But it has to be perceived. This is where perseverance comes in. This is where discipline comes in. This is where staying the course, walking in persistent obedience comes into play. In James chapter 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Now, the best picture I have of this verse is this. A bodybuilder, a guy who wants to be a bodybuilder, maybe he looks like me, walks into a gym and orders a set of muscles. I want a set of muscles, please. How much do I got to pay? Well, they'll gladly tell you, you know what you got to pay? You got to buy a membership and you got to show up here every day or at least every other day and you got to exercise. But what the church wants to do is we want to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Lord, could I have that without the trials? I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. I've given you my spirit. All that you need is within you. The kingdom is within you. As you start releasing it, as you start exercising your faith, it takes resistance to build muscles. If you just sit down at one of those machines or you just start lifting the bar and you just do that every day and wonder, you know, I don't understand why my muscles aren't growing. You have to add resistance. And the more resistance you add, the bigger your muscles get. Do you want to be a weak, anemic Christian when the last days come on us? No, you don't. And so consider it joy when you're going through a trial because the answer to your trial is within you, in the the person of the Holy Spirit, not in you, okay? This isn't, you know, the better you uh, self-help program. This is the Holy Spirit is in you. So everything you need, you got to tap into what's in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. The word of God is get it in you so that you can take authority over every situation. You can exercise your faith. You can build your muscles. And it's not about the result because no matter what the result is, if you exercise your faith, you are going to grow and develop and perseverance will develop in you and it will finish its work and you'll be mature and complete and you won't lack anything. That was good. I hope you liked it. So we gotta go to Psalm 129. Because this is where perseverance comes in. And I hope you see how we tie these together. But Psalm 129, and I put it on the screen because I'm reading it to you from the message translation, the message Bible. It says, they've kicked me around ever since I was young. This is how Israel tells it. They kicked me around ever since I was young, but they never could keep me down. Their plowmen plowed long furrows up and down my back. Then God ripped the harness of the evil plowman to shreds. Oh, let all those who hate Zion grovel in humiliation. Let them be like grass in shallow ground that withers before the harvest, before the farmhands can gather it in, the harvesters get in the crop, before the neighbors have a chance to call out congratulations on your wonderful crop, we bless you in God's name. See, we live in a culture of short-lived enthusiasms. We do not know what it is to wait or to persevere or develop perseverance. We get instant everything. And if we have to wait any length of time for anything, we get nervous, agitated, upset, or angry. That's what our culture has conditioned us to be. Not so with the people of God. You have got to be one who has perseverance because you can't be mature and complete until you have perseverance. It has to finish its work. And the only way to get perseverance is to have hardships and trials. Okay, now, here's the nice thing. You don't have to pray this. You don't have to say, Lord, please send the hardships and trials that I need to develop perseverance. You don't have to pray that. Okay, they're already on the way. Okay, so just don't, don't, don't do that. I'm not encouraging that in any way today. Uh, they're coming. Okay, God will hold back what, what he can, or what he will, I should say, and 
and allow into your life what you can handle, but what you have is what he's given you. So the people of God, the Israelites, the believers are tough. And we have to be because the world hates the people of God. It always has. Okay? The systems of this world hates it. If you look back over the history of the nation of Israel, there's no better phrase than this. They've kicked me around ever since I was young, but they can't keep me down. I mean, the nation of Israel ceased to exist. They were scattered to the corners of the world, and in 1948, out of nowhere, they come back together into their land, hated by all their enemies, still hated to this day. And if, you've, if you don't know your history, and you don't know the number of, of armies that came together and tried to destroy Israel, and in just three days, this newly established nation with a tiny army sent them packing. I mean, it's an incredible story of David beating Goliath. And they hate Israel all the more because of it. Here's the thing. They have always hated Israel. They've always hated the people of God. For centuries, the world has waged war on the people of faith, and they have yet to win. They've tried everything, and none of it's worked. They've tried persecution. They've tried ridicule. They've tried torture. They've tried exile. And all of those things that they used to try to destroy the people of God only strengthen her. That's all it does. In Isaiah chapter 53, the psalm, or Isaiah writes these words. He grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on, passed over, a man who suffered. He knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. That is a portrait of rejection and persecution. That's a portrait of pain. We would look at these words if we didn't know better, if we didn't know what was coming, we would think, what would ever become of that? I mean, what good could come out of that? We wouldn't think much. But now we know the rest of the story because in verse 10, it says, he'll see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. Though what he, through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones and he himself carries the burdens of our sins. We know he's referring to Jesus. We know he's referring to what Jesus went through. And when we look at the life of Jesus, when we look how it began, it begins with 40 days of testing and sacrifice in the wilderness. Then his ministry ends with a night of testing in a garden and the cross. I mean, what a perfect ministry. What a terrible beginning. What a terrible ending. Only God could take something so hideous and make something good come out of it. There is no one on earth who has ever experienced such relentless, merciless pounding from without and from within than Jesus at the cross. No one. Let's look at the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul's life was adversity to persecution, back to adversity, and he writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I've worked much harder, been jailed more often, Beat up more times than I can count. At death's door, time after time. I've been flogged five times with the Jews' 39 lashes. Now, I know that we've all told fishing stories, okay? Um, it's always, you know, bigger than we actually caught. But the thing is, is if you're writing scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, you can't exaggerate. 
I mean, if, if Paul is exaggerating, then this book is not true, and let's just go home. Okay, so he's not exaggerating. This is not a fishing story. I've been beaten five times with the Jews' 39 lashes, beaten by Roman rods three times, pummeled with rocks once. I've been shipwrecked three times, immersed in the open sea for a night and a day, in hard traveling year in and year out. I've had to ford rivers, fend off robbers, struggle with friends, struggle with foes. I've been at risk in the city, at risk in the country, endangered by desert sun and sea storm, and betrayed by those I thought were my brothers. I've known drudgery and hard labor, many a long and lonely night without sleep, many a missed meal, blasted by the cold, naked, naked to the weather, and that's not the half of it. When you throw in the daily pressures and anxieties of all the churches, when someone gets to the end of his rope, I feel the desperation in my bones. When someone is duped into sin, an angry fire burns in my gut. Yet none of that had the power to push Paul off his path. None of it convinced him that he was in the wrong way. And at the end of his life, in Philippians chapter 3, he writes these words. I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off and running and I'm not turning back. You know what you call that? stick to Perseverance. Patience. See, to be a disciple of God is not a fad that we take up one day and discard the next. To be a disciple of God is something that lasts, it works. It's been tested thoroughly. Now, there is a line in Psalm 129 that we'd rather just do away with. Oh, no, excuse me, let's start, for, I'm sorry, we gotta backtrack. There's a fascinating line first, and then we'll do away with one. God ripped the harness of the evil plowman to shreds. The previous verse to this gives us the context of it. Their plowmen plowed long furrows up and down my back. You have to picture Israel, the person of faith as a human being, lying stretched out face down. All of their enemies are literally hitching up oxen and plows, and they begin to cut long furrows into their back. That's the picture we're getting here. Long gashes being cut into their skin and flesh being torn up by this plow back and forth. Systematically, just like a farmer would work a field, up and back and up and back. Imagine the whole thing. Imagine the blood, the pain, the back and forth cruelty. And in the midst of all of this, suddenly, the realization is that there's no more hurting. The oxen are still trampling back and forth, and the ox herds are still shouting their commands, but the plows are no longer working. Because God ripped the harness of the evil plowman to shreds at the cross. He, he trampled it. That's what it says in Colossians. The harness cords that connected the plow to the oxen have been severed. The plows of persecution are not working. And the ox herds haven't noticed. So they continue to plod back and forth, shouting their commands, unaware that their persecution is no longer working. The end of the psalm gives us another illustration. It says that the opposition to the people of faith is like grass in a shallow ground. Palestine is a very rocky country. In many places, there's just a very thin level layer of soil that sits right on top of bedrock. 
And so seeds that go into that soil will germinate. They'll grow up quickly. But in the heat of the day, there's no root system because there's, there's rock. And so the grass withers and it doesn't last. No one that walks along the road and sees grass in, Hal- in Palestine would shout, congratulations on your wonderful crop. We bless you in God's name. Because they understand that's about to wither. That won't last. Okay? So what it is, is it's an illustration. It's almost like a political cartoon, if you will. Reminding the people of God that the life of the world that is opposed to God, the life of the world that is indifferent to God is futile. It's barren and it's hopeless. It's like plowing a field thinking that you're trampling all over God's people. It's like thinking you're cutting his purposes to ribbons when in fact you're unaware that your plow was disengaged a long time ago. It's like thinking that you're going to get a harvest of grain from a shallow patch of dirt on a shelf of bedrock. This is what we know as people of God. To oppose God is futile. Then we come to the phrase that we don't like. In this psalm, it says, Oh, let all who hate Zion grovel in humiliation. I mean, let's be honest. Who of us in the midst of pain and hardship, especially when people or situations have come across our path, don't, we don't feel anger. I mean, it's just natural that bitterness tries to take root or unforgiveness or, uh, you know, vindication. And so this idea of wanting our enemies to, to grovel in humiliation, we all understand that. But we can't excuse it. I mean, even for this psalmist that hasn't yet experienced the power of the cross, the word of God still is true. In Leviticus, the law of God, it says don't secretly hate your neighbor. If you have something against him, get it out in the open. Otherwise, you are an accomplice to his guilt. Don't seek revenge or carry a grudge against your people. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm God. In Exodus chapter 23, we're taught, if you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey that is straight away, take it back to its owner. If you see that the donkey of someone who hates you has collapsed under his load, do not walk by. Instead, stop and help. Proverbs 24, don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble. So we cannot make excuses for the vindictiveness of the psalm, but maybe we can inspire its energy. Think of it this way. It's apathy and it's the sluggish neutrality of faith that is the enemy of perseverance. It's when we stop feeling and we stop being passionate for the kingdom of God. If you are a parent and you watch your child dart out into the street and a car speeds by and narrowly misses your child, you'll probably yell in anger at the driver who wasn't paying attention and also yell in anger at your child to teach them. And anger may not be the best emotion to express concern at that time, but it certainly shows concern. We understand it. We know where it's coming from. And so we can look at this psalm and we know that maybe it's not the right display, but we understand where it comes from. And what we also see is that the psalms are not sung by perfect pilgrims. The pilgrims of old made their mistakes and we make ours. Perseverance does not mean perfection. It means we keep going. 
It means we don't quit when we realize we're not mature yet. It means we don't quit when we realize there's still a long journey ahead of us. We get caught yelling at our spouses and yelling at our friends and yelling at our employers and yelling at our employees and at our children and at our parents. Proverbs 24, 16 says, the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. Ultimately, my faith doesn't rest on my perfection. Thank the Lord. The cornerstone sentence of Psalm 129 is this. God wouldn't put up with it. He sticks with us. When the Bible says God sticks with us, the emphasis is on his dependable, personal relationship. He is always, always there for us. He sticks with us is the reason that we can look back over our lives and we can look back at all the cruelties and all the unannounced tragedies and all the setbacks and all the sufferings and all the disappointments and all the depressions. We can look back across it all and see it as a path of blessing. And not only that, but we can actually make a song out of it because God sticks with us. They've kicked me around ever since I was young, but they never could keep me down. God sticks to his relationship with us. The central reality for us as believers is the personal, unalterable, persevering commitment that God makes to us. Perseverance is not the result of our determination. It is not that we have some extraordinary stamina. Perseverance is because God is righteous and God sticks with us. In Hebrews chapter, chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews writes this song or this litany of people who live by faith. These were men and women who made God the center of their faith, their existence. They didn't live perfect lives. None of them lived without sin. They all had moments of, of disobedience and rebellion. Every single one of them in that list made mistakes. And yet God stuck with them so consistently that they learned how to stick with him. And so at the end of this list, in Hebrews chapter 12, look at the words he writes. In light of how they've lived, stripped down, start running, and never quit. If you've ever been to a cross-country race, if you've never have, you need to go to one. They're awesome and they're exciting. And it's like one of the only sports in the Bible. So, you know, I'm not saying it's biblical, but I'm, I'm just saying it's there. At the start of a race, especially on a cold day, uh, they wear their warm-ups, okay? They keep all these clothes on to stay warm. And right before the race starts, we have someone at the starting line, um, student manager, somebody that's gonna take all their stuff back to the team camp. Their hats, their gloves, their jackets, because they strip down time to run. That's the illustration we're getting here. Strip down, start running, never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished the race we're in. I mean, it's all him from start to finish. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. 
Now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility that he plowed through, and that will shoot some adrenaline into your soul. See, the early church, some of these Christians have been complaining. I mean, they had started to think that life was maybe a little too rough for them. And honestly, it really was. You compare their lives with our lives, and we don't know the half of it. But yet, some of their complaints still spill out over into our lives. And we still hear them. I mean, what's the use in believing in a God that we never see? What's the use of serving a God who doesn't give us what we want? what's the use of trusting a God who lets babies die and good people suffer? And this seems so harsh, the words that come next. But the author of this passage decides to really almost give them a slap in the face. It's like, I don't know if you've ever seen someone just yelling and screaming and just needing someone to go, bam! Oh yeah, thank you, I needed that. I don't advocate that in any way, but this is what he says to them. In this all-out match against sin, others have suffered far worse than you. To say nothing of what Jesus went through, all that bloodshed, so don't feel sorry for yourselves. In essence, he says, quit complaining. Look at the path that you're on. Look at where you've come from. Look at where you're going. Keep your eyes on that. Take up the refrain of this song. They've kicked me around ever since I was young, but they never could keep me down. At the center of our faith is the God who sticks with us. He is the righteous God. Christian discipleship is a decision to walk in his ways, steadily and firmly. And somewhere along this path, we realize that God takes all of our interests and all of our passions, all of the giftings, all of our needs, and even all of our dreams, and he weaves them into this perfect plan. This is the life we were created for. And all along this path, there's going to be endless challenges that will keep us on the growing edge of our faith to help perseverance develop in our lives. And there's always, 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 always the God who sticks with us to make it possible for us to persevere. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come back. And they're gonna lead us at the conclusion of this service now in a song together. And the song is called Never Let Go. And it's a song about this truth right here that in the midst of everything that we face in this life, he pursues us. Even in our mistakes and rebellion and apathy, he never stops chasing us. (laughs) When we would give up, he doesn't. I mean, we don't have to trust in our perfect endurance. He started and finished the race for us at the cross. We just have to keep going. When we fall down, we just get up. And if you can't get up, you cry out to someone else, help me up. And that's the body of Christ. And we come around and we help you up. And sometimes we even give each other that slap in the face of reality. 
that says, hey, look at what Christ did for us. You can keep going. I mean, it doesn't have to feel like a slap in the face. It's just an encouragement. And so wherever you find yourself on this path, I hope these words will resonate in your heart. And as they sing this song, if you want to stand and you want to worship with them, if you want to come around this altar and find a place of prayer, we want to pray with you. If you need someone to pray with you, just stand. If you want to pray alone, kneel, and that'll help us know if you want us to pray with you or not. But this is how we're going to conclude this service, and when they're done, I'll come back and dismiss us in prayer. But let's let the Holy Spirit now take this word and minister it into our hearts. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. Even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back, I know you are near. And I will fear no evil, for my God is with me. And if my God is with me, whom then shall I fear? Whom then shall I fear? Oh no, you never let go calm and through the storm oh no you never let go in every high and every low oh no you never let go lord you never let go of 